just turn to Our Lady, ask her to intercede. Remember that uh, she stood next to John beneath the cross, and I'm sure the two of them were really, really uh, close, and ask for her intercession as together we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so first off, we're just going to do some introductory remarks on the book of Revelation. And as we know, that we're, we're hitting the last book of the Bible. I mean, the, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and the last book of the Bible is Revelation. And I'm sure, uh, you know, if you Google Revelation, and you're going to get all kinds of things, and they're going to say, you know, things like, you know, the pandemic is a part, you know, it's the apocalypse and these types of things. And, but let's, let's step back and look, what does the Word of God say about, about this particular book? How do we read it as a Catholic? And what does it teach us? Uh, it definitely is speaking about the end times. Uh, but it's also talking about things that have already happened and things that are happening right now. Okay, so when you're looking at the Bible, it's not just... You know, we have to look at it from three, three angles. And um, I guess the first thing, I know it's, it seems elementary, but, you know, to start, who wrote the book of John? When you go to Bible studies, and especially if, if you went to a, the seminary, uh, which many would not have an opportunity to do so, or if you go to a, take a theological class, which you can as a lay person, we have lay people in our, uh, you usually kind of, uh, you'll have a couple classes just on who wrote it, which I thought was a little bit of a waste of time, you know. Uh, but let's just, let's just look at it. It's John, okay, John the Evangelist. Uh, I don't think there, and the reason I say that, you know, there's some Bible scholars that say, well, it could have been, you know, this other guy or another disciple, and uh, I don't know why people uh, say this, but, um, you know, many of the early saints say it was John who wrote this, and he himself, he, 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 t he tells everyone that it's me writing this, and a lot of the phrases he uses are, are very similar to the book of John. Right, and so you'll see a lot of a lot of similarities between the book of John, which is the most rich of all the Gospels, um, and uh, to pray about. But it's also one of the hardest to understand. And John is 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 a contemplative, so a lot of times he speaks at a whole other level. Okay, it's much easier to read Mark. <laughs> Mark's is you know very straightforward. It's, it's it's like a story. John's much more contemplative. And okay, um, now when was it written? Uh, there are two views on this. Uh, St. Irenaeus said it was written about 90 AD, okay? Uh, and there's another, St. Jerome says uh, it was around 96, but then there's another theory writing around saying that it would have been during the 60s because in the book of Revelation, there seems to be implications that the temple is still standing. All right, now, do you know anything about, uh, you know, Jewish history or, or Roman history? Does, uh, you know, that's one of the tra uh, tragedies that happened for the Jewish people, which Jesus foresaw, was what? The destruction of the temple. And that happened when? 70 AD. All right, so could it possibly be that, that you know, could this have been written in the 60s because it was still there? Now, what I'm going to, I'm going to take a, I'm going to use Taylor Marshall as my guide on this one. He has actually a series on this, and I really like the way he brought the two worlds together. He said that probably... That, this, that, he, that John received this vision in the 60s and he wrote the book in what? The 90s, all right? Uh, and I'm gonna kind of go with that, that school of thought, that there are some things that would imply that this, the temple was still standing, okay? And that, that being said, he foresaw us, but then wrote it later. Uh, we'll know when we get to heaven the truth of that, that matter, but uh, if you believe it was written in the 60s or 90s, you're not a heretic, it's just, I think it's probably both and. 
that he witnessed this vision in the 60s and then he wrote it later in the 90s. Okay, now remember, one thing about the Bible is that the Bible is infallible, which means what? Is that it's without error. And the way to look at the Bible, it's the, word, it's, it's, uh, the thoughts of God and the words of men. Okay? But we, what's the trick, is trying to figure out what's the intention of the author. Right? So that's it's a key point when you're reading the Bible and when you're praying to the Bible, what does this mean? And I got to tell you, right, right now in the uh, breviary, the liturgy of the hours, right around, right after Easter, we go into the book of Revelation. I got to tell you, it's like the hardest time to pray. It's like, you know, you know, six o'clock in the morning, you're reading John, you're like, ah, what is he talking about? You know? So hopefully after this class, we'll have some insights of what, what God is telling us. All right. Now, word revelation. What's the word revelation mean? It comes from a Greek word, uh, apocalypsis. I'll write that down for you just so you can see it. And we get our English translation of that would be what? Apocalypse, okay? But the, the, the Greek word uh, that uh, most likely this would have been written, uh, John would have written in Greek, is apocalypsis. Let me see if I can. Okay. It always seems like my mar markers die at the right time. All right, so well, anyway, the word means unveiling. Okay, it means unveiling. And what we're seeing here is God is unveiling his will to us. You know, he's also unveiling uh, a little bit about salvation history, what's going to happen. And really, the whole Bible is an unveiling of who God the Father is, right? His love for us. It's it, from cover to cover. It's a, the Bible is a love letter. God's love for humanity, which we, at first, it seems it's hidden. And then over time, God, who God is revealed to the person of who? Jesus Christ. Okay? So the word means unveiling. Okay? We tend to look at the word as the world's going to come to the end. Apocalypse. But the, the, the correct understanding is, no, it's unveiling of what will happen. And quite frankly, you know, the coming of the end, of the end times should be glorious for a Christian. We should be looking forward to that. I mean, our, our proper disposition should be so. All right, now, um, let's kind of jump into the text. Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. And uh, why don't we read a little bit of this, and then we'll, we'll do some commentary. All right, so chapter 1, this is called the prologue. And it says here, we'll read three lines. It says, the revelation, what's that word in Greek? Apocalypsis, apocalypse, the, the revelation of Christ, Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must happen soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who gives witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ by reporting what he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud and blessed are those who listen to his, where's the last word? To his prophetic message and heed what is written for the appointed time is near. Okay, let's step back. What do we just see? Like what, what it's, what's about to happen is about to happen. Okay, now, um, a couple of things. Um, a couple of things that have pu puzzled uh, scholars and, and even us is that mean that, you know, what, is this something that's happening now or something in the future? And when you, when you read this, there's three ways that we have to read this. I'm going to give you the, the technical term and I'll explain what it means, okay? Number one, write this down. All right, the first thing is we have, uh, there is a, a term called the preterist term. I'll spell it out. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, 
All right, preterist. That means something that happened in the past. So when reading the book of Revelation, has some of this stuff already happened? Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. The Antichrist. Did that already happen when, when he's writing it? Yes or no? What do you think? Okay. Is it, go, is it going to happen? Yes. Is it happening now? Right. Okay, so what's the preterist way of looking at it? The Antichrist that's already happened. Now, we'll get to that later. It's Nero. Nero, who's persecuting his, his families, the Christians. And we also know there's going to be an Antichrist in the future, right? Are there Antichrists now? For sure. But then there's the ultimate one, all right? Second one, the futurist interpretation uh, says that something that will happen in the future. So uh, we, when we're reading this, this revelation Jesus Christ given to John is something that will also happen in the future. And thirdly, the historical interpretation uh, is something, this is an interesting, this, this something that unfolds over the centuries. Okay, so the third way of looking at it is this revelation is unfolding, which ties into the word apocalypsis, unveiling. It's unveiling over time. Right? So what is happening, the end times are coming, but they're, we're in stages, and we're not sure which stage we're in. Now everyone wants to know, well, is that tomorrow? But the bottom line is, the correct way of looking, it has happened, it will happen, and it's happening now. And the three terms are preterist, the second is futurist, and the third is what? Historical. Okay, we'll go back to these at times. All right? Now, all right, looking at the text, who is John... Who is John directing this message to? What are the words? He says to what? To tell his servants. Okay, who are the servants? The servants are all the baptized, the Christians. Now remember back then, how many types of Christianity were there? Right, there was one church. We were all one church. Everyone had the same sacraments. So he's addressing. So now, using what we just learned, is he talking to us? Yes, because it's also historical. That this is the living word. That he's John is speaking to us two thousand years later now, to because we are his servants. Okay, um, and who's responsible for carrying this message? Uh, it says a revelation which God gave him. Him is who John gave John this message, so that he could tell his servants. Um, what is now to take place very soon. He sent his angel to make known to his servant John, and John has borne witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ. John has been given this duty to bring this message to us today and to the people he was speaking to back then, which we'll find out are the seven churches. The seven churches that we're going to go into. Okay? All right, now... <clears throat> No, I want you to look at this, and it's broken down. This message is transmitted into five parts. Ready? And we look at the text. The first is, beginning with God the Father to the reader. So it starts with a revelation of Jesus, which God the Father, God gave him, gave Jesus, so that he could tell through, so it goes from God the Father to Jesus Christ to an angel to the writer, John, and to us, the servants. So all the messages we get in the Bible come from what? God the Father. They're passed down to us and revealed to us to Jesus Christ, given to an instrument that's going to convey the message, which is usually the evangelist in this, in this uh, particular letter. It's John. It was given to John by an angel. Angel to John, right? Now the angel could also be what? 
the Holy Spirit to John, and John writes it, and it comes to us. So is John writing it to us? Yes. Was he writing to those communities back then? Yes. Okay? All right. And then he says the time is near. Um, okay. Um, now, the other thing here is this word, uh, the time is near. I mean, it means that these... Now, the problem when we're reading it is for, for God, one day is like a thousand years. Right? So for us, God, everything happens in a moment. And a thousand years, things like it's like eternity for us. Okay, uh, could it be the end of times? Possibly, but I would argue that most people thought at one point in their life that it's the end of times, right? And uh, I kind of think after we get through the Book of Revelation, we're going to realize that we're really not at the end times yet, because there's so many things that have to happen first before God can come back, right? And we're going to realize as we go deeper into the text that the main message is what. Jesus Christ is coming back to take what belongs to him, which is what? Everything. Everything. Like this world belongs to him. And when he comes, here's, here's, here's the thing that's going to blow everyone away. Everyone's going to be a believer. Now, they might not go to heaven, but they're going to know darn well that what? Jesus is God. Because Jesus is going to come back to take what is his. And give us a new heaven and a new earth. Restore everything to its original beauty, which we've messed up for many, many years. Right? He's going he's gonna to change everything to the way it, sh it should be. So in some ways, it's good news. Right? All right. Now, what does he say here? Who are, then in verse 3, he said, Blessed is anyone who reads of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear them, if they treasure the content because the time is near. So, um, so what is the condition of getting this blessing? Well, uh, come to Bible study. <laughs> you know, blessed are they who, 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 uh, who reads. So if you're not reading it, you don't get the blessing. No, blessed are who reads and blessed are those who hear them. If they and, but more importantly, if they treasure their content. What does that mean? It means, in other words, not that you just read it, but like, I see that this is true. And this, this actually, I want, I want to understand this. Right? So I'd say anyone who goes to Bible study, blessed are you. Right? These, God, through John, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you. All right. Now, the other thing, the other thing too, is you have to, you're going to find out, too, that a lot of this is almost like, and if you've read uh, The Lamb Suffer by Scott Hahn, what is his argument when he talks about the book of Revelation? Does anyone know his, his take on it? That the book of, Re of Revelation is an unfolding of what? The Mass. Right? The Lamb Supper. Okay, now, what you're going to see is a lot of the language that we're reading is going to be like a liturgy. What's a liturgy? A liturgy of the work of God. It's a formal prayer of the church, right? Uh, and when we get into the next section, we're going to see languages like it's almost like a mass. Like God's going to appear to John in the form of a, a beautiful liturgy, right? What's heaven, if you think about it? Step back. What is heaven? It's the eternal what? Kind of the eternal banquet, you know? And we'll get to that because you're like, oh gosh, that sounds boring, you know? But, but it's like, but, you know, just like the most perfect adoration of God, right? So just, just kind of keep that in the back of your head. Now, uh, verses 4 to 8. Alright, let's read it slowly. John, to the seven churches of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
the highest of earthly kings. He loves us and has washed away our sins with his blood and made us a kingdom. Is this close to your, to your translation? Almost all of it? Okay, good. All right. To serve his God and Father. To him then be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming on the clouds. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the races of the earth will mourn over him. Indeed, this shall be so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and was, who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so first off, it says John 2, what? The seven churches of Asia. Okay, now, this would be present day Turkey. Most of these places don't exist right now. They've been kind of in the, I think the fourth and fifth century, um, a lot of the barbarians destroyed these cities. Okay, so this is ancient history. All right, but these were seven main churches and they were kind of like, if you could, it was almost like, you know, like a route, like a circular route of, of, of dioceses or parishes, right? Probably smaller communities, but you know, it would have been like, okay, Baltimore, Washington, you know, Arlington, there's different dioceses. And it would have been a circular route of seven very major uh, churches at the time around where? Turkey. Okay, and what we're going to go through through the next couple weeks is we're going to go through each letter. Uh, hopefully tonight we'll go to the letter to the Ephesians, to Ephesus tonight, which is the first letter, and there's seven different churches. So it's being addressed to the seven churches, but also implicitly to what? To us. Okay, directly it's being applied to the to these seven churches, but also to us. And it, then he says, grace and peace to you from him. What does that sound like to you? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Right? It's like a liturgical, he's like making this, like he's entering into his liturgy, right? Um, now remember, the angel's talking to him, John, grace and peace to you. So he's seeing this vision of this like powerful uh, sort of uh, liturgy, right? And he's just, we're going to find out when, when we get to the appearance of what Jesus looked like, we're going to see a lot of things that you see in the Mass. Are you with me? Okay. All right, and it goes on to say, um, uh, grace and peace to you who is and was the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Okay, now, um, uh, so what we're going to see here is also in these beginning, these lines, these four lines, is a, is a Trinitarian uh, profession that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let's, let's look at that in the text. So God is revealing himself to us and God is revealed to us as what? The Trinity. Three persons in one God, right? Father Ray Schmidt was telling me a story that uh, a couple years ago, he's doing confirmation interviews. And uh, this one kid, they weren't too sure about, and they're like, you need to talk to him. And so the kid comes in, he's like, all right, all right. He's like, son, tell me what the Trinity is. He goes, there's the daddy, and then there's a son, and then there's me. <laughs> so that he didn't get confirmed. But anyway, uh, <laughs> or he had to do extra classes, you know. But, you know, God has revealed to him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let's go into the text and see uh, what's happening here. So, it says, from him who is to come, that is the Father, from him who, is and who was and who is to come, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, if you go back to the text, is the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, why the seven spirits before his throne? What does the, set, what does the Holy Spirit give us at baptism? And then also, at, and it's strengthened at confirmation. Okay, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, all right? 
the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see this. Uh, this is sort of a reflection of I Isaiah chapter 11, 23. When the Spirit uh, is shown to, to Isaiah, it says, The Spirit of the Lord rests in the Spirit of wisdom and understand the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and delight in the fear of the Lord. So uh, he, this is sort of a... It, it, this is the Holy Spirit shown as the seven spirits, but the seven gifts that come from him. Okay, so we see the Father, then the Holy Spirit, and then he goes, and then he goes into this whole thing about Jesus, and from Jesus Christ, and then it has like, like a series of descriptions of who Jesus is. Now let's look how, let's look at the different things they describe Jesus as. And from Jesus Christ, the first thing it says is the faithful what? Faith and a witness. Okay, all right, and you probably know this from. From preaching, you've heard this before. Does anyone know what the Greek word for witness is? Matarius, right? And what is that? Where do, where do we get from Matarius? Martyr. Martyr, right? So why would Jesus call himself the faithful witness? Well, he gave, he sacrificed his life for us. So the whole point of Jesus was he came to die for our sins. He sacrificed his life. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, right? So the first thing is, is he's a faithful The word martyrs uh, means to give your life. So Jesus is first the faithful witness. Witness doesn't mean, look, I, I believe in Jesus, you know, uh, and I witness to Christ. You know, it really, the ultimate witness is what? It's to sacrifice your life. So Jesus is the faithful witness. Number two, the firstborn from the dead. Okay? What this means is he is the first member of the human race to pass from death to life through his resurrection. Okay, now none of us could, could, you know, the first, none of us could be first born after death until what? Until Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And because Jesus Christ has risen, has died and risen from the dead, we too can rise through him to eternal life. All right, the next thing is ruler of the kings of the earth. Or what does that mean? That Jesus has sole authority over every power. Okay, so. I mean, prayerfully, what does that mean? Does Jesus Christ have control over everything in our lives? Yeah, if we let him. Is he more power than any evil we experience? Absolutely. Uh, is, is anything, I mean, can anything ultimately destroy Jesus Christ? No, because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, remember, when Jesus, uh, you all watched The Passion of the Christ, and that one scene where he's talking to Pilate, and Pilate's like, you know, I can let you go, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, well... You wouldn't have this power unless my father what? Have given to you. And he, he also says, by the way, I'm God. And if I wanted to, I could destroy all your armies right now. You know, and just so you know, I mean, he, he but he permitted himself to go through his suffering. But he reminded Pilate that you wouldn't have this authority unless my father gave it to you. He's saying, I have the authority, but I'm laying, I'm sort of dying to that so I can die for the people, for, for my people. And then he goes on to say, to him who loves us. Um, now, to him who loves us in the Greek it means like not just loves us, but it's what the word loves means continually loving us. So it's this continuous action of God totally always loving us, right? And then finally, um, fifthly, has freed us from our sins by his blood, it says in the book of Revelation, right? And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas calls the precious blood the key to the heavenly paradise, right? Because we're, we're saved by the blood of the lamb by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Um, St. John Chrysostom says, the blood has the power to drive away uh, evil spirits and draw to our side the good angel, A, the king of angels, and to blazon the way to heaven. Um, you know, just a, a, a side spiritual note too. If you ever like are just getting beat up spiritually, 
I'll tell you, a very simple prayer an exorcist taught me. He says, uh, say, I claim the protection of the blood of the Lamb. Just write that down. And like anytime you're like, I'm just, you're feeling out of sorts, just say like five times and watch how much peace comes over you from just saying that prayer. Because what are you invoking? What, what's, what liberates us? The precious blood. I claim the protection of the blood of the Lamb. Okay. And then, um, okay, moving on. Let's go back to the text. So we've gone through this description of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on, and made us kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. So Jesus Christ, through his blood, made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. Okay, now, um, Father, Father John made references to this in the, in the mission, right? And what was his whole point? He talked about the common... It's only three weeks ago. What was it? <laughs> common priesthood. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean that you're a priest? Not like I'm a priest. How are you a priest? You're, all right, so there, remember, there's two types of priests. Ministerial priests, and my, my main job is to, is to be Christ and to uh, do the sacrifice of the Mass, right, to give the sacraments. But your life, you have the, essence of, uh, the essence of priest is sacrifice. And what is your offering to God? How are you a priest? By offering your whole life to God, united to the cross, for your holiness. Right? So part of your priesthood is what? Your work. When you go to work and you do it well, and you study or you, you, uh, you know, perform a surgery or you have a legal case or you know, you're filling up a prescription, making signs, whatever you do, if you do it for Christ, it's, it's, your, it's your priesthood. Taking care of your kids, that's your offering. That's your priesthood. Right? And so your, your whole life is an extension of the priesthood of Christ. And why is that possible? Well, because Jesus Christ came and died for us, and now we are an extension of his body. Okay? All right, so we go, all right, and so, uh, and so how? Our life becomes a form of worship to God as a spiritual sacrifice. In the Mass, right? Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. What's my sacrifice? The Mass. What's your sacrifice your whole life? And so when you come to Mass, right, like John is here in this liturgy, He's saying, look, God, I'm trying my best. I unite this life to your altar, and I'm asking you to make it better. Strengthen it, help it, purify it by your precious blood. See how it links together? All right. And then the next line, this is the theme of the book. Ready? You excited? Okay, you can tell. Uh, <laughs> I know. The problem with Revelation, it's thick, right? It's like, you know, it's, there's a lot of lines where just, he's so, he just keeps talking. There's so much depth to it. He says, look, he is coming on the clouds and everyone will see him. So that's the theme of the book. That look, everyone, look, he is coming on the clouds and everyone will see him. What are we talking about? The second coming. Okay, the whole book is how do we know he's coming? When is he coming? What has to happen first? Look, and everyone will see him. Now, remember, which, which season of the church do we celebrate that? The coming of Christ. Come on. Advent. Right? What do we do in Advent? Another, there's, two, there's two preparation times. The first one is Advent. The second is Lent. Advent, the first, all the readings are like, you know, wake up, be sober and alert. He's coming. You know, all these, these Gospels. The end of, at the end of this church year, you also in November, when we get to the end of the church year, all the Gospels are like, you know, you better wake up, you know, don't be a goat, you know, be, make sure you're a sheep, you know, he's coming, right? And so, um, John is, this whole thing is like, he's coming in the clouds and everyone will see him. 
And that's the principal, the principal uh, uh, theme of this book. And we'll go back to that. Uh, this verse announces that many scholars consider to be the theme of the book, not the second, um, but you know, and not just the second advent of Christ, but the coming of Christ upon the old covenant Israel to abolish the old covenant uh, ritual worship, which is you know the sacrifices of lambs, and to replace it with his church, the new kingdom. Okay, now let's go back to that whole thing we were talking about the differences of when he wrote the book. Now, one was he would wrote it what in sixty. And then the other interpretation is he wrote it when? In the 90s. Now it makes sense, if he's coming to replace the sacrifices, right, with the mass, it makes sense that the, the temple's still there and they're still making sacrifices. When he writes the book, it's been replaced by what? By Christ, right? Because what happened in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, what happened? No more sacrifice of lambs, because you didn't need to. Who replaced the sacrifice of the lambs? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. You see that? Alright, so this whole thing of Him coming is, has already happened historically by Jesus coming to replace the Old Covenant uh, sacrifices. Now, um, if you can, if you can uh, quickly or not so quickly, can you turn to Daniel chapter 7.13 where we have this image of coming in the clouds and this is a reference that a Jewish person would readily uh, recognize. And in the book of Daniel, which is another apocalyptic um, you know, uh, part of Scripture. So if you go to uh, chap Daniel chapter 7, 13, I'll read this. It says here, um, 10, 11, 13. All right, I'll start at 12. The other beast, which also lost. Notice beast, we're going to see beast in Revelation. The other beasts, which also lost their dominion, were granted a prolongation of life for a time. And as the visions during the night continue, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, so John is going to borrow from Daniel to talk about what Daniel was talking about was this, this appearance of God at the second coming. He's going to go back and use that as a reference. All right, the second coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Okay, all right. And then it goes on to say in the text that people will be mourning. Let's go back to the text again. It says, everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. All right, now who are the people that pierced Jesus Christ? Well, who literally pierced Jesus Christ? The Roman soldiers, right? With the nails. And then, does anyone know the name of the soldier who stuck the side of Jesus? Longinus, right? I, I love that scene in The Passion of the Christ. You know, he's and uh, Longinus is kind of like, you know, he's just walking around and, you know, and he stabs and all of a sudden he just goes into this like daze and he has this like sort of conversion because the blood of Christ and the water of Christ fall directly upon him. And he becomes sort of baptized in the blood and, the blood and water of Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about powerful experience, right? Uh, but, but implicitly also who pierced Christ? Everyone. We've all pierced Christ with our sins. Right? So all of us that have pierced Jesus with our sins, we've, in some ways, implicitly, we've nailed the nails in his hand, we've nailed into his feet, we've pierced his side by our actions and our thoughts and sinful desires, right? That one day we'll look upon those we pierced. But for those who believe God, it's going to be like, wow, you know, he's come back. And, and the, those wounds are going to be a sign of hope and that we're now entered into heaven. For those who do not repent, it's not going to be so pretty. Right? So the second coming is going to be a wonderful thing for those who believe in Christ and have given their life to Christ. 
and accepted his, his mercy and been cleansed by the blood. But for those who are not, it's not going to be so fun. Right? We'll find out later. Okay? And, um, and so, uh, so we, we see that, that. So who pierced Christ? The Romans, but also us. And then he, go, he calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega. Right? Uh, when I was in seminary, we, we started. Um, uh, uh, I started a, a football team, and uh, we needed we needed uniforms to play the other uh, college teams. And so everyone had like you know it was like take, uh, I don't know take you know Kappa Delta whatever. And then they're like, well, what do you want to be? Like, we'll be Alpha Omega. <laughs> and, uh, and so we got someone actually made these jerseys are great. It's black and it's Alpha Omega. And like, oh, that's really cool. I'm like, yeah, it's in the Bible, you know. And uh, and uh, uh, but anyway, what does that mean? All right, the Alpha and Omega are the, are, the, are the beginning and ending words of the Greek alphabet, right? The Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. And so they're the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. All right, so what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Jesus is also the beginning, and he's the end of all things. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. I'll read this slowly. You can look at it later. Thus says Yahweh, Israel's king, Yahweh Sabaoth, his redeemer, I am the first and the last, there is no God except me. Now, one thing we know about Jesus and God, right? If you're listening to the catechism, it's still, I, mean, I don't know where you're all at, but it's like we talk, we've been going through this whole thing of God, that God's always existed. Has Jesus always existed? Yes, right? He's the beginning. Will he always exist? Yeah, he's the beginning and the end. Was God present at creation? Yes. Was God the, you know, I mean, God, Jesus has always existed, but he came into, into history 2,000 years ago when he became a man. He took on human nature, but God, Jesus has always existed, and he always will exist. He's the beginning and end. And the scary thing is, we'll always exist now. I always find that to be the, the that makes, I don't know, I get creeped out when I think about eternity, you know. It's still, it's still a hard thing that we, we will always exist. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's so vitally important that we get to where? Right. All right. Please, let's get to heaven. Right. And uh, the idea that this, this is eternity. And we, but our problem is we look at everything so with these microcosmic, you know, things. And we're, we make a big deal about like, oh, this week wasn't great. And like, you know, next to eternity, it's nothing. All right. Because we'll be with, with, with Jesus forever. The beginning and the Alpha and the Omega. All right. Now, we're going to go into uh, the vi first vision of Christ. All right, we're in verse number nine. Let me go back to let me go back to this text. I, I kind of veered off there just so we're reading the same exact text. And go to Revelation chapter one, verse nine, and we're seeing this first vision of Christ, which is very mysterious. And it says, John, your brother. Okay, so now John, your brother, John's addressing John, your brother, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus. All right, let's stop there. All right, first off, John's speaking to us, but he calls us what? Our brother. Why does he call us brother? Because, you know, if we're baptized, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we're one big, uh, sometimes dysfunctional, but powerful family, right? Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so we're all, by baptism, we're brothers and sisters, and we're brothers of John, right? Uh, and so he calls us, but then he goes on to say, um, what is it that, that unites us as brothers or sisters in Christ? Look at the three key words. Look at this. It says, it says here, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance. Now, some of you, do any of you have a different uh, translation? 
Persecution is a better is a much better one. Who picked out this translation? It stinks. No, but so yeah. So it's persecution. What's the second word? Kingdom. The kingdom, and thirdly, endurance. endurance. Okay, let's look at those three. This is what unites uh, unites us as, as as Catholics and Christians. All right. So uh, I have here tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. That uh, we're, we're as brothers, we're going to share in these three things. Isn't that great? We're all going to have hardships. And uh, in, in Greek, the word is distress, kingdom, endurance, or you can say tribulation, uh, kingdom, or perseverance. Now let's start with distress. And I think a better word is persecution. And, um, and I, John just kind of uh, basically says right off the bat that one thing that we're going to experience as Christians in Christ is we're going to, um, unfortunately, before Christ comes, and we're going to see this later, when, when, the anti, when we experience the Antichrist, and we experience, you know, the end of the world, one of the things that's going to purify his church is what? Persecution. Like, this is going to happen. And what we're going to see is powers to be are going to hurt us and try to, you know, you know destroy us. And, and, this is, and if you think about first century Christianity, it was very, very ugly. How many of you have seen the, uh, the movie about St. Paul? The, the, uh, what's that called? Paul of Tarsus? I know. I know. We did. We took a, we took a trip out there to watch it at a movie theater, and it was, it was so funny because I was sitting next to uh, Father Ken Gill, and this one one kid was sitting next to me from Sacred Heart, and he turned to his like he turned to his mom. And it was kind of embarrassed. He goes, "Mom, this is so boring. Can we leave?" And she's like, "Be quiet. This is awesome." And I'm like, <laughs> I turned to Father Ken. It wasn't the greatest movie, but anyway. But uh, but essentially. Um, you know, there's this this whole um, this persecution, and then the opening scene, if you look at it, is they took the first Christians, and what do they do? They made them into Roman candles, right? And it's just you're watching this, and like this can't be real, but that's what happened, brothers and sisters. I mean, they would break into your houses, and you know, you're saying for mess. Guess who's the next Roman candle, right? And you know, a real quick trial, and they burned you, and people were like, oh, they suffer for Christ, isn't that great? You know, it just it was crazy, and and. Uh, out of all, out of all the apostles, how many were killed? Yeah, all but one. Who's the one who survived? John, right? Now, I, I just read this re recently in, in the Martyology. There's, a, you know, they go back. They actually tried to kill John. Um, it was in the Colosseum. I, don't, I, I think I told this a couple masses with healing prayers. I don't know if you remember this story, but I was struck by it. Is that they had this huge cauldron of boiling oil. And they placed John in it. And somehow, miraculously, he just like went in, you know, uh, what's that food where you, you put the chocolate on it? Uh, a fondue. It's like a fondue, a human fondue. And he came out and nothing stuck to him. His, his skin was completely untouched. And they tried a couple of times and like, and they're, they're like, why is he not burning? He's like, because God has preserved me or something like that. And the whole stadium got on their knees and started bawling and converted to Christianity. God converted their hearts. And notice that the persecution actually united all these people in Christ, right? Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, and so, and then, but then, what is, we'll realize that John is actually going through a little bit of a white martyrdom because after this, his friends, uh, namely Peter and Paul, were martyred in 67 AD, all right? So he watched two of his best friends, uh, St. Paul got his head cut off. Uh, and the, and you, you can uh, pretty much, if you've been to the uh, St. Paul outside the walls, uh, that's per, where that probably happened. And also Peter was uh, crucified upside down and all the other apostles. 
And, uh, and he was sent to Patmos, right? So he was sent on a, he got a one-way ticket to Patmos Island, and that's where this vision happened. But it wasn't a fun time because he was away from all his family and all his churches, right? He was kind of sent away to like Siberia, so to speak. I mean, Patmos actually is a beautiful place. It's, uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a, a luxury resort now. <laughs> so I don't feel too bad for, for John. He's got these beautiful beaches. I'm sure he's like, oh, this is terrible. But, uh, you know, but he, uh, he enjoyed it. But it was, he probably experienced severe loneliness, right? So he wasn't going through a persecution, right? All right, now, so he has this vision. And then, um, all right, John says, why did he get this vision? On account of why, why was he exiled to Patmos? So it goes on to say, um, so we're united. Uh, well, I'm sorry, we, we, we just did persecution. We didn't do the other ones. Let's do kingdom and then perseverance. Um, okay, hold on one second. Um, the, the second thing is, is this is the kingdom. What unites is the kingdom of God, right? And, and essentially what all that means essentially is, is like the church, which is the kingdom of God on earth, unites us as brothers and sisters. Okay, and then thirdly, perseverance, and that word, uh, in, uh, basically, I think in Greek is hupomone, which means long suffering. You know, one of the things, what are we going to need in order to to make it to heaven is perseverance, right? I mean, it's a, a spiritual life is like a what? It's like a marathon, right? And there's ups and downs, and there's times you feel like giving up, but we look at all everyone before us; they all went through this thing, and they got through it, and. Bam, they made it. And so we have to, when that, and we should be united in perseverance. Um, okay. Um, so going on, it said, when did this happen? It says he was, he was on the island of Patmos. Why was he there? Because they were persecuting him. Uh, why? Because of the word of God and witness to Jesus. He witnessed to, to Christ. He spoke about Jesus. And we see in the scriptures very clearly, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, every time they open up their mouth about Jesus Christ, what happened to you? You got stoned, you got whipped, you got imprisoned. Okay? And he didn't stop preaching about Christ, so they sent him as far away from Rome as possible. Right? That still happens at times. Okay? So, um, when did this happen? On what? The Lord's Day. Okay, this happened on the Lord's Day. What day is that? Sunday, Sunday right? The Lord's Day, right? So, this is kind of like during during a liturgy on the Lord's Day. And it says, it talks about this. It says, And I was in ecstasy, and I heard a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet. Okay, now, first thing is we notice that the, the, the voice of Christ was like a loud trumpet, loud as a trumpet. All right, and, um, and then it goes on to say, uh, he's in the round voice says write down in a book all that you see and send it to the seven churches all right here are the seven churches ready Ephesus Smyrna Pergernum Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia and Laodicea so those are the seven churches that this is being addressed to okay so we see these seven uh, communities that he's saying write this to and and then it goes I turned around to see who was speaking to me because he only heard a voice this booming voice like a trumpet and then uh, when I turned I saw a it says uh, I turned around and I saw seven golden lampstands in the middle of one one like the son of man dressed in a long robe tied at the waist with the belt of gold okay so let's let's break open some of that um, the first thing is this is he sees Jesus Christ, and he has a long robe and a sash. What is that? What is it? 
priestly garments. So Jesus is dressed as a priest, right? Now, theologically, how many, what, how, what, uh, a priest is just an extension of who? How many priests are there? One. So Jesus is standing there as a priest, okay? Sort of, sort of like a liturgy, he's sort of a mass, and he's got a sash around his head. That's what the Jewish priest would have wore, and it's kind of like we wear a cincture around our waist at mass, and he had this long robe. We still long, wear long white robes like Christ, right, at mass. We call that an alb. And then it says his white, his, he has white hair in heaven. Okay, now I always thought that was kind of strange. Like, I thought, you know, Jesus probably, like, would not, you know, let his hair grow, you know, white. But, but what, is, what is the Jewish understanding of white hair? What is, it, is, it, is it good to have white hair as a Jewish person, yes or no? Most definitely. Yeah. Why? Because it conveys wisdom. Okay, so the white hair, it's like, probably like really nice white hair, but I, you know, white hair, right? And it was, it, it conveys like this wisdom of Christ. And, and what we see here is uh, his head and his hair were white as wool like snow. And it also, it also conveys sort of divinity and his eternity, his, his infinite power. This white hair is powerful, right? All right. And then uh, his eyes were orange like what? Like fire. Now, have you ever been to the, uh, I'm sure you've been to the Basilica, the National Basilica. And do you ever see the, the big, like, He-Man Jesus, like, behind the altar, right? And it's just like, and it's, I remember just as a kid, like, wow, you know. And it's, you just stare at it. But I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe his eyes are orange, right? Why? why? Because they're conveying in the Basilica the vision of John. All right. If you get to go there, tell me if I'm wrong. You know, I hope he doesn't have blue eyes. But I think he has orange eyes because they're trying to depict. Because it makes sense. He's just sort of this big. And I, I think his hair is a little bit off, not brown, but like a little bit whitish, per se. All right. And, um, and what this means, his eyes are burning like a flame. And this is the divine knowledge which searches the depths and hearts of mind. In other words, the orange eyes are these eyes that pierce right through us. Because how many know when you like Jesus looks at you, he sees everything about you. There's no hiding from the eyes of Christ. And these orange eyes, these, these fiery eyes, are the eyes of his divinity and his lordship. And he just, his love for us. And it's like these eyes of love looking, penetrating our thoughts and our everything. Okay, so these orange eyes. And then his feet are shiny like bronze. Okay, um, now we know that uh, with sacred vessels in church, all right, trivia question. Is it okay for me to use a glass vessel for the precious blood, yes or no? No. Yeah. Very good. All right, I give you full permission. If you see a priest do that, correct them immediately. After Mass, you know, by the side. No. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it was really big in the 80s. Like, everyone had these clay vessels. Why do, we, why do we not use clay and glass? Well, first, if it breaks, guess what? We have a big sacred mess, right? It's, that would be sacrilegious. But the other thing is that the vessels, uh, you know, they're sacred metals that should be used uh, when you're touching Christ, right? And his feet are brass. And just like the vestment, the, the, um, uh, the vessels used at Mass have to be at least brass, better silver, best gold, right? Ours are a mixture, you know. Uh, it's really, they're super expensive, but it, you know, at least we're silver. You know, and even the monstrances, uh, the old one it was brass. Our candlesticks are brass. It's a precious metal. So anything that touched the altar has to be, has to be precious metal. 
Uh, but the, what, why, what it symbolizes is permanence, his purity, and his majesty. So brass was an understanding that Jesus is a king. Jesus is majestic. Jesus is worth all our adoration. We have to bow down before this king. And then it says, in his right hand he held what? Seven stars. Okay? Um, you know, so he's, 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 he's holding seven stars. Um, I was looking at a, a Bible commentary on the seven stars, and it spoke about how the, uh, what this means is, is that he holds the church in his hand, and the word in Greek is kratin, K-R-A-T-E-I-N, kratin, and what it means is it's, it's like to have complete control. So his, his big, powerful hand has the whole church inside of it. Now, I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to pray about that for a moment. Because what do most Catholics think today in the United States of America about the church? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, is Jesus it does, is he taking a vacation? But this word, it, look, here's the thing. Regardless of what's happened in the church, Jesus still has his church in his hand. I think the problem is people are kind of like sliding off of it. <laughs> you know? But if, the point is, if we stay in his hand, and that was a gospel this morning, wasn't it? In the gospel, it was in, in today's gospel at Mass, it talked about the, that he, the shepherd, was, it wasn't something like, like that we're in, the, in his hand, right? Okay, that, this whole, but, it's, but it means to have complete control. And, he, and he, has, he walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands, and the lampstands of the churches. And so he, he's got, he's got complete control of the church, all right? And... Um, so, uh, okay, uh, and then he, uh, let's go to these last parts. I think we're into chapter two, am I correct? Um, these seven stars. Okay, great. That, that, is that the end? We're going to Revelation chapter two, one to seven. How are we doing on time? Yeah, let's, let's, start, let's start Revelation chapter two, finish at eight o'clock on the dot. Uh, me, What's that? One more thing. It well, says, um, his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Is there a significance to to that water? Yeah, the, the reference is sort of towards, um, uh, when I looked at that, it's a reference a little bit to, I mean, um, the, the symbology is of baptism, but also it's like, um, it really was an understanding of the power of God too. Like, you know, it's like, the, I mean, when you, um, you uh, kind of like when you go to the ocean and you see the crashing waters, what do you think about? About the power of God. And so it's more of a, it's just a symbol of his, his, his power and majesty. And you know, so in his his, uh, his sovereignty, so to speak. Okay, so you have to picture this. Like when he looked at God, at Jesus, he was like, it wasn't the same Jesus he hung out, you know, on the side in the <laughs> on the beach in Galilee. He was like, whoa, he's gotten pretty big. I mean, like he's he's coming back looking like what? God. All right. So he has this vision of now. Remember, John spent three years, day and night, with the Lord, and now when he sees him, he's like. Well, like he's seeing God's what? Divinity in full force. So he was just like, you know, we're gonna see that he fell back, he was so he was so moved by this vision. Back up three inches. Okay. Okay. All right, I forgot I'm on camera. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so um, Yes. You ended that, but then there's uh, verses seventeen through like twenty. Okay, sorry. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, so, um, all right. 
He held the seven stars. And then, let's go on. When I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Now, remember, like I just said, this vision of Christ was so powerful that he just fell back. Now, remember in John chapter, I think it was John chapter 19, when the soldiers come, the Jewish soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they say, uh, they say, where is Jesus? And then he says, are you Jesus of Nazarene? He says, I am. What happened to all the soldiers? Do you remember in the scripture what happened? They fell back. Did you catch that? Yeah, in John chapter 19, like they say, well, are you Jesus? I am. No, they just like, this force like pushed them back. And in, in, in essence, I think there's some, some tie in there when, G, when John is in the presence of the Almighty God, he's, he's thrown on his back. He's so overwhelmed by the, the serenity of God. All right. Um, when I caught sight, I fell down at his feet as though dead. He touched me with his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. We've already talked about what's it in Greek? Alpha and the Omega. And then he says, Once I was dead, but now I, I'm alive forever. So he's, he's uh, appearing as the resurrected Lord. And he says, I hold the keys to death and the netherworld, right? So he has the, the keys to the netherworld. When we talk about the netherworld, the, 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 the dead or the, uh, the, the righteous that have died uh, and what is happening and what will happen afterwards. This is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, now, all right, I know you're probably asking this. Who are the angels of the seven churches? Were you asking that? Okay, that's all right. All right, I'll tell you. The angels of the seven churches are one of two things. There's two theories. Either they are the angel, like literally the angels in charge of the churches. I don't know if you know this. Sacred Heart has a guardian angel. So God has assigned an angel to Sacred Heart Church, but also the Archdiocese of Washington has an angel assigned to it. Okay? Just like every one of us is assigned what? Angel. Guardian angel. So could this be... Like, you know, uh, it says here, uh, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, like that's what he's talking about. But um, Taylor Marsher, I'm not saying he's a, he's a, a pleadester, but also another commentary I, looked, I, I was reading said that the seven angels are the seven bishops of the diocese, okay? So it's either the angels or it's the seven bishops. I'm gonna kind of go with the bishops on this one because in a sense, I think that John, wants to give this message to the bishops because the bishops are in charge of what? The churches. Why would, it, you know, why would he have to give the message to an angel rather than the bishop? Okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. What, what's your question? You look very confused. All right. So, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, you got it. So basically, like, he's talking to these seven angels. And so the angels, it's either he's given this to seven, it's either angels of the churches that we talked about, or the angels are signified the seven bishops. All right, so just, when we get to that, we'll get that. All right, um, so that comes in when we go into, the, the, into Ephesus, right? All right, chapter two. Let's just do a little bit of this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, close it up. To Ephesus. Um, should we just end here? Yeah, let's end it there. Okay, all right, so chapter two. What, all right, for homework, what we're going to do next time is we're going to go through... I'm going to try to go through the letters to the seven churches. Okay, so if you're looking at that, that's going to be Revelation uh, chapter 2. And in that, we have the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Smyrna, the letter to per per Pergamum, 
the letter to Thyatira, and then chapter 3 is Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it's 2 and 3. So it would be kind of cool if we got through the letters to the seven churches. Okay? And I think that, that, would, that would be good. They're actually uh, uh, fun reads, and they're, and they're good to pray over. Uh, for instance, he's going to talk to the Ephesians. He's say, you know, I'm really proud of you. But then he says, this one thing I have against you. Where's that love you first had for me? You know, and every time I read that, I'm like, ah, oh, you know. Like, it's sort of like, where's that love you used to have for me? You know, it can, it's kind of like, you know. And then, uh, and then, you know, obviously, then there's the, the church of Laodicea. He talks about, you know, this is the whole thing of lukewarmness, you know. And uh, he, he says, you're rather, I'd rather you're hot or cold because you're lukewarm. You know, so he's kind of like uh, talking to these churches that he loves, but he's, he's kind of like saying, hey, wake up, right? And uh, so we'll go through this. Okay. All right. Let's uh, finish with a prayer. And uh, we'll see you next week. And just try to get through uh, chapters 2 and 3 on your own if you want to read it. And uh, if you like these notes, I can send them to you. You can look at them on your own, okay? Uh, let's turn to Our Lady and pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John the Evangelist, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.